You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. We're in Acts, starting in chapter 2. Jared was here last week, um, and he preached the beginning of chapter 2, where the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's been prophesied about. He's been promised for generation after generation. And then we see this room of believers who all of a sudden the Holy Spirit shows up and indwells in them. And they begin to speak in tongues, and there's confusion. And he began to talk about what is the gift of tongues, what is prophecy, and how this is not something that we should run from because we're confused about. It's something that we're supposed to pursue. It talks about in 1 Corinthians, love. We should want, eager, desire love and desire the spiritual gifts. This is something as believers that we need to pursue in our lives. What does it mean to have the spiritual gifts stirred up in our hearts? Um, and he talked about the importance of prophecy. But I love that he talked about how Peter, when all of a sudden everybody's speaking in tongues who were up in that room, and they were filled with the Spirit, and people outside are confused. And some say, I hear them worshiping. I hear them speaking tongues in my own languages, and they're worshiping God. And other people say they're just drunk. And Peter's like, no, it's too early to be drunk. Let me explain what's happening. And then he begins to preach. I want to pick up a little bit more about what he's actually saying. And I think it has some insight for us this morning. If you will look in Acts chapter 2, I'm going to sum up verses 14 through 21 for us. Basically, it's Isaiah's prophecy. He says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall see dreams. And he begins to say... Everything you're seeing right now is fulfillment to what Isaiah said would happen. What you've been waiting for to happen, here it's coming. I love that it says, in the last days. I've grown up in Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches. I've been to Reformed churches. But in Pentecostal churches, I hear it all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've heard some lady say, guess what, it's coming. The last days are coming. God's going to do a thing because the last days are coming. You, you guys know what I'm talking about? That, anybody experience that lady? The truth is, let me say this, yes and no. Because here when Peter says this, in the last days I will pour out my spirit, he's saying now. So from the time Peter spoke till now is the last days. There's no later last days. Last days part three. La- that's not how it works. He's saying from this moment, here's the last days that was prophesied by from Isaiah, God's pouring out his spirit in the last days. Until everything's done, he's pouring out the spirit on everybody, regardless of race, regardless of sex, regardless of whatever, he's pouring out his spirit. So yes, we are living in the last days. It's not, Jared said this last week, he said, it's not about the color of the moon, it's about the color of the bride when he returns. That's what we need to live by. We're supposed to be responding and living in the spirit, being that bridegroom that's, not bridegroom, that bride that's ready for him. Make sense? So we can get off on these charismatic tangents and say, well, here it comes. Wait, God's going to pour out his spirit because it's going to happen around the corner. I don't, it doesn't take a prophet to say that. Peter already said it's happening. His spirit is already being poured out. You might not recognize it. You might not be asking for it. But his spirit is already here and prophesying and speaking and giving dreams and giving wisdom to young, old, slave, free, whoever. No amens. No amens in that. Just me. Somebody rich, give me an amen in the back. I just need it. Thank you. Thank you. We live in the outpouring of the Spirit. We live 
in that moment. We live in these last days that Isaiah was talking about. See, we get confused when we think as people last days, we think of in our lifetime, our, our span, the most recent hundred years, the re- recent 40 years. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't operate in our time system. It makes sense? So when God says the last days, those last days have been the last 2,000 years. That's okay. He could come back during the middle of this message, or he can come back in another 1,000 years, and I'm okay with that, because in the last days, he will return at the end of the last days. And in the meantime, I get to live by the Spirit. I get to live and enjoy the presence of God in my life. I'm thankful I live in the last days. Hopefully you are too. And then in verse 22 through verse 36, um, let's just read that together. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man you attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your, your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, I sit, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I want to stop there. What happens is Peter begins to preach, and he says, hey, you're seeing the tongues. You're seeing what Isaiah said. Now, you're seeing a fulfillment to what you wished for or you've been longing for, but you're not only seeing that, you're seeing the fulfillment to what David, the one that you call king, the one that you build your lineage back to, you're seeing the fulfillment of what he prophesied. Let me, let me explain. David says here, the Lord said to my Lord, he says, he won't, the Lord won't see corruption. And he's saying David is talking about Christ. Christ's body never saw corruption. He didn't deteriorate in the ground. He's no longer in the ground, but he's ascended to heaven, and he's sitting with the Father. So Peter, at this moment, says, not only can I explain what you just have seen, but I can also tell you why you have seen it and why Jesus was Lord. The one that you crucified, he's Lord. Let me me show you how it makes sense. That's what Peter does to this, this crowd at this moment. He says, we've been waiting for the Spirit, and now even David, David has prophesied about Jesus. This is like, this this falls in comparison here, but like David to them is like Abraham Lincoln, like the best figure in 
in historical figures. You can't really think of anything to bash David by. This is what they were, this is what they're thinking. It'd be like them saying, the one that you look at is holy and really good. He was even predicting this. This is the one thing we've been waiting for. Does that make sense? I know that Abraham and Lincoln and David are not the same here, but you guys understand what I'm saying. Verse 37, and this is where we really want to focus this morning. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is Peter's first major message. This is when he comes out the gate, out of the Holy Spirit has fallen. Jesus told them to wait till the Holy Spirit's here. The Holy Spirit shows up. They begin speaking in tongues, and Peter preaches his first message. This is not something for you and I, or just for pastors to look at and say, well, how do I preach a good message and save 3,000 souls? This is something for all believers to see and examine and see what's really happening here. Number one, let me show you what he does. Number one, he starts off with, let me explain what you're seeing. He looks at this crowd and says, let me explain what's happening. Number two, he says, this is what's happening is the thing that you're searching for. The thing that you've been looking for. Number three, your own belief systems point to your need for this. And number four, this is what you do to receive him now. Those same four things you and I get to interact with every person that we meet. Every person, regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of religious views, those are the same four things that we can look at people and say, let me show you how, the holy, how, how this is what you need. Let me show you how the longings and the questions in your heart point to your need for Jesus. Every person you meet has questions. Every person you meet has longings. Every person you meet has desires within them. And they all point to our need for our Savior. They all point to our need for Christ. You and I have to learn, like Peter, to recognize that in people. When I see my coworker who's angry, I need to recognize there's part, there's, there's something there that's crying out for her need for a Savior and for joy and for love and peace in her life. Does that make sense? This is not a how-to for preachers. This is a model for all believers in sharing the gospel for those who are searching. We all have questions and we all have these, these things that, that show that we need a Savior. Let me, number one, let me, let me look at the desires of people. And I, I'll just talk about a few different common desires. We see power. We see relationships or sex. Or we see wealth. Those are three primary things that we can look at society and say that drives people. You guys know what I'm talking about? That person who's driven by wealth, driven by sex or relationships or whatever, or power. We see people, we've heard of stories of people who are driven by these things. And when they accumulate those things, they're not satisfied. Make sense? In this, I want to read this quote out of this book. Um, it's actually called The Stories We Tell. And it's basically about movies and books and how you can look at the most 
not filthy, that's not the word I'm looking at, the most secular, if we want to use that term, I hate that term, I was just telling Bobby the other day, I don't like that term, the most, whatever, bad show on TV, to the most Christian show on TV, or whatever, and all of those things in some way points to our human nature and our cry for God, and our need for Him, and so it's talking about these things, but I love this, this quote he says here, um, his name's Mike Cosper, he says this, one who carves a log into an idol and cries out, deliver me, for you are my God, has actually got it half right. He is in need of a savior. He's got it half wrong, too, and the silence of that wood should make it apparent, though too often it doesn't. Basically, he's saying, we create these idols in our hearts, whether it's sex, money, power, sports, whatever. We create these idols in our heart. We're no, hopefully, you're not carving wooden idols anymore and sitting on your nightstand and doing a little prayer to it. Maybe you are. That's ridiculous and today's culture, but maybe you are. But we do that in our hearts. There's something that we're longing for, so we create relationships, a wife, a a boyfriend, a girlfriend, kids. We make them into idols, the thing that we're driven by and motivated by. And when they don't really fulfill the long-term hole in our heart, we should recognize we weren't created to serve that. We should recognize it. We've got part of it right that we need a Savior. We need that thing to fill the void. But it, it's not that. And we should recognize it through that. The second thing, other than our desires, is the questions. There have been so many people who don't come to church, who don't believe in God, because they have really, really good questions. Really good questions. Well, if there's a good God, why is there sickness? If there's a good God, why is there death? Well, if there's a good God, why is there injustice? If there's a good God, why is there pride and, and angry people and evil people? Why is there lust? Why is there greed? They get all these questions, and they're good questions. The truth is the gospel answers all of those. We see that he is the promised healer for the sick, that he's coming to restore all things, and we do see him interact and heal here and now. He's promised to deliver us and give us life. And he says, death, where is your sting? We don't have the curse of death living for us anymore. We see justification for those who are believers. And we see the ultimate judgment for those who haven't seen Christ and found their justification in him. We see that instead of our pride, self-righteous pride or, or ability pride, we see that the only thing that can save us, the only thing that can satisfy us is him We can only boast in him, Paul says. So all these questions, whether it's greed, greed, if we struggle with greed or if we struggle with lust or we struggle with any kind of major sin, we also find that he's our redemption. That he's the one that took the weight of that sin, of that brokenness, and he paid the price for it so we can be redeemed from it. Doesn't matter what question you want to ask, ultimately everything points to him as the answer. Everything points to him. C.S. Lewis says this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Every bit of brokenness that we see in this world points to our need for his kingdom to come on the earth and to be here and dwell among us. Does that make sense? Everything, all the questions we have in our hearts is because the, the most depraved person recognizes that this world is broken and it needs a savior. We have to be able to engage people like Peter and says, everything you see, all the questions you have, I can explain. I can tell you how he is the fulfillment to what you've been looking for. 
I can tell you how it might not make sense now, but let me explain one of the basic core values of what you do believe, how you need this. So we talked about desires, we talked about questions, but the truth is everything else also reflects our need for him. Science, the universe, our body, all these things can be, if you really, I was just watching a video this last week from a pastor who was saying about when you look at something, when you look at space, right, when you look at human DNA, when you look at whatever, he was talking about a guy who studies leaves, you can get lost in the layers of leaves if you're a person who studies leaves. I don't know if it's a leafologist or, or what, I don't know what they're called, botanist, is that it? Leafish, leafist, I don't know, just kidding. You can get lost in something, right? You can get lost in the sense of awe. He was saying humanity is the only thing that has a sense of awe. You've never seen a fish swim around and go, wow, this is pretty deep. That's what that, I didn't say that. He said that. I'm, I'm going to give him credit for that. But you, I've, ne- I've never seen my cat have a sense of like, wow, th- thank you. I really appreciate you feeding me today. You're, you're a pretty good owner or whatever. I've never, I've never seen that. I've never seen a cat go, Man, this is delicious. I really love this kibbles and bits. That's probably for dogs, isn't it? I don't know what it's called that we buy for our cat. We, we as humanity have something very unique. We have this thing in us that looks at the universe, that looks at the heavens and says, wow. We can look at the human anatomy and get so lost in it. How does this work? The, wait, the heart does that? The brain does that? Expl- explain to me how the brain works. Well, I'm sure Rich could explain it in the back. But still, I'm confused and I'm in awe about it. There's something in us that can look at science, we can look at creation, and everything in us points us to recognizing the creator. It should point us in that direction, if we're honest. Just this last week, this might sound a little ridiculous, but I was working here in the office and it was cold in the office and warm outside. We had a nice day in Scranton. Imagine that. And I thought, you know what? I don't need to work in here. So I got a little card table out. I sat in the back parking lot, pulled a little chair out, got my books, put my headphones on. We had some worship music going on. Got my sunglasses on. I'm sitting in the back parking lot, just worshiping, praying, studying for today's message. A big old truck comes through the back there, and he looks at me like, what is this insane guy doing in this parking lot? And I just like, I, just, I actually just waved at him like, why are you driving through my parking lot? But I'll smile anyway. And I'm sitting there and I'm just like, God, what are you speaking? I literally thought this is, God, I, I just want you to speak to me. And I look up and I see the buds on the tree above me. Spring. Thank, thank God for spring. And I see this awesome blue sky and I'm just amazed at his goodness. Only you and I get that feeling. Only you and I can look at creation, can look at people, can look at everything he's done and be like, God, I just don't even know you, but I see you. The psalmist says in in 19, says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Everything that we see, every thought that we have, every desire in our heart points us to need to know God and discover Christ, discover the fulfillment of his Holy Spirit living inside of us and giving us joy, giving us peace, giving us hope, everything that we need. Everything shouts out that we need him. We've got to become people who can recognize that in others. 
that the questions they have, the things they ex- get excited about, all points to their desire to, for more, their desire to know him better. I love this verse 40. It says, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. One reason I like that is because they give us part of the message here, and then they don't give us the rest. Like, it would be really easy to be like, well, let's see what Peter did, and that way we can get 3,000 saved. Okay, this is the entirety of his message, and let's just read this. It doesn't say that. He says, and many other words were spoken. We don't need to know them, but we do know he exhorted them to repentance. Exhorting people to repentance. Not scaring people to repentance. It's not yelling at people to repentance. In our, in our men's group last week, we were talking about how do we share the gospel? How do, we, how do we effectively communicate this? And I was talking about how I'm, this is 2002, I believe. I was on my way to my first mission trip to South Africa, and I'm, we had a layover in London for about a day. We're going through Piccadilly Square, and we're about to go down into the subway station or get on the tube, as they call it, mind the gap. You have to mind the gap. They have big gaps, if you don't know what that means. You could fall in and get ran over by a train. Mind the gap. I had a t-shirt that said that. It was awesome. Until I got too fat for it, and now I can't wear it. Anyway. Mind the gap. So, um, we're, we're on our way through here, and my friend's got the video camera out, and there's this guy. This is a guy standing just like this. With one foot just kind of tapping. He's got a bullhorn. And he's like, be a winner, don't be a sinner. That's what Jesus would always say. I don't remember that. (laughs) He's like, stop the vanity, try the Christianity. That's what Jesus always said. No, he didn't, boss. I don't think he did. (laughs) And then this is is the kicker, though. We're on our way to Africa to minister the gospel to people, and we're walking by him trying to, like, kind of get out of this awkwardness. And he literally goes, there's some sinners right there. And he follows us with his finger. In front of this crowd, he, like, points at me and my three missionary friends. There goes some sinners right there. Stop the vanity. Try to Christianity. I'm like, thanks, boss. He's looking for 3,000 believers that day, and he got probably none. Because he's not exhorting in love to repentance. He's trying these little cool catchphrases with a bullhorn, being self-righteous. Maybe he had a good motive, but there was no exhortation in love. Peter comes to them and says, let me show you how your hearts are crying for this. And then it says, verse 40, and well, not verse 40, sorry, I lost it. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? He appealed to the desires and the longings of their hearts, answered their questions, and they were able to say, my heart's broken, I need this. I need what you have. What should I do now? That's how the gospel is proclaimed. Whether on the stage, in Piccadilly Square, or at your workplace, you need to be able to recognize that people have questions and desires that should, you should be able to point them to Christ through. You should be able to say, this is, this is how he fulfills that void in your heart. He brings life through truth and not condemnation. He brings life and exhorts them with whatever the rest of the stuff he said was. He was able to give them life that led to repentance. He sees them where they are. 
he sees what their needs are, and he, he meets that through the gospel. He says, receive and be baptized. So these 3,000 people, they say, what should we do? He says, receive and be baptized. And they're baptized that day. Let me, let me explain something here. Your faith never is never supposed to be private. It starts out here public. You receive this, and let's make a public declaration of a new life of a new faith, something that's happened on the inside needs to be public for everybody to see and know so they can experience it as well. The church grew so fast in Acts, not because people were hiding it or were afraid they weren't able to answer questions, but because they recognized something different was happened and they needed it and they wanted to publicly respond. It's, this is not just in baptism. Everything about the Christian life is meant to be displayed to the world. Marriage is supposed to be a reflection of who God is to the world. My life, whether we're married or not married, everything I do, like I said this morning, should be through the lens of him being our vision and him being declared to everybody around me. Everything I do needs needs to be a public declaration of who he is. It's a public faith, not a private one. Because it answers the longings of people's hearts. It answers what people are looking for. So I ask, why, why do we stay silent? Why do we make it a private faith instead of a public faith? See, number one, one, number one thing that we should do here, this, this, is, this is why the things like catechism are good. We need to be people who study the word and spend time in his presence so we know him better. And then when we do that, we're able to answer the questions and confusions of people's heart. See, I'm not saying studying helps you be super smart, because the truth is there are a lot of people who come to me with questions I'm, I struggle to answer. I know God has an answer for it, and I can give them the best attempt, but I can't answer why you're going through what you're going through all the time. I can, I can give you really good, theologically sound answers. Sometimes it still hurts. Sometimes what you go through, you're still confused by. Sometimes questions, I don't have all the, the knowledge. But I do know that it always points to him and our need for him. And that's why, because I don't want to be silent. That's why I need to send, spend time in his presence. Because one, I delight in his presence. And two, it empowers me to go out of his presence. We see in scripture that he talks about giving us a peace that surpasses all understanding. When I spend time in his presence, when I study the scripture, when I spend time worshiping him, I'm filled with peace that doesn't make any sense. And that's something I should be able to share with people that I love and people that I don't even know. I should be able to share that they can have peace that goes beyond understanding in their life. I love that James says this as well. If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God because he gives it freely. I love that we have this God that answers people's questions and gives them peace, but it's really when we pursue him. When I spend time with him, when I, when I seek after him, when I ask him questions, he gives these things, and I need to be able to share that to people around me. See, the Spirit uses us to answer questions in other people's hearts. I, I shared before about Proverbs chapter 16 and how it says that it's for us to prepare our hearts to make plans, but ultimately it's God who speaks through us and gives answers. 
I love that because that motivates me. I can spend a ton of time in Scripture, but I don't have to learn every answer to every question. I just trust that he'll speak through me, and I need to be empowered to do that. Can I make a, a confession here? Can I make a, a statement? I've spent way too much time in, in, in my life thinking that I was the defender of the Holy Spirit, that I had to somehow, like, defend what the Holy Spirit does and explain, like, hey, um, I'm not that crazy. I'm not that charismatic. Let me, uh, they're good people. They just, I don't want, I spent too much, does that make sense? Trying to defend my, my beliefs, my, either my view of the gospel or my position as a, as a charismatic I spent too much time trying to defend that, thinking that I'm somehow the Holy Spirit's defender, that it's up to me to, like, make people think we're not insane, <laughs> rather than being the proclaimer of it, rather than being an ambassador for him. It is not your job to try to, like, keep the Holy Spirit calm and what he does like, make, it make sense, but yet we are empowered to make sense of what he does. You and I are supposed to be ambassadors of what he's doing, able to communicate what he's doing, not try to hide it and be like, well, we have to defend this. This is, this is the crazy charismatic corner. Let's keep them back here. Let's keep these Christian people back here, the holy rulers, right? Let's keep, them, let's keep them back here, and we'll hide them from society so the world doesn't think we're all a bunch of bigots. That's not... My job is to communicate and demonstrate the Holy Spirit and the love of God that exhorts people to see their need for him. That's what I'm supposed to do. Not this Christian that hides and defends it. We've got to learn to be people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit on mission and answering the questions of the world. Nobody says amen to that. <laughs> I know this, this, is, this is one of those things that actually challenges people to do something. We like things that have very minimum risk, minimum involvement. How much do I really have to pay to be a part of this club? The Holy Spirit, God says I want everything. God says I want all of you. And I'm at this place in my life right now, and I'm being honest, where I have to say, Holy Spirit, I want you to empower me. I want you to get rid of pride. I want you to get rid of selfishness. I want you to give me boldness so that I can proclaim what you've done in me and what you've done across the world. That's what I need, and that's what I want a church to be on mission with. That's where we need to be. It takes buy-in. It takes people saying, I want the joy of the Holy Spirit to fill every area of my life, whether it means I have to speak it out or whether it means I have to be silly in front of people. Whatever it means, I want the Holy Spirit to dwell in me and to use me. I'm glad that got an amen. That's good. It, it really is time for us to start being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jared said last week about us pursuing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We ought to pursue the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we've got to begin to engage people where they're at. We've got to begin to ask them, okay, I see this in your heart. I see this desire. Let me show you how that points to Christ. Let me show you why you're not satisfied with sex. Let me show you why you're not satisfied with the job that you have, the money you make, or the house that you have, or the car that you drive, or the relationships that are falling apart. Let me show you how this brokenness will be solved through Christ. Those, that's the people we need to be. That's the people we're called to be. And Peter starts off right off the bat. Day one, Holy Spirit falls, people are confused, and he comes in and he says, let me, let me bring this all in. And 3,000 are added. I love that. Imagine, imagine a church that gets it. Imagine a church that actually does.
that verse says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This city is full of people who are ready to be cut to the heart. Your job has people who are ready to be cut to the heart. I know there are some people who are hard-headed, who've got a lot of baggage in their, ba- in their past, who've got a lot of hurts in their past, who've got a lot of questions that are really good questions. My co-workers at my old job, they're like, well, I won't believe in a God who lets this happen. I won't believe in a God who says this. Well, the problem is, God's still God whether you believe in him or not. Your, your viewpoint doesn't really change anything. But let me tell you why that cry has an answer. Let me tell you why that viewpoint has a response that points to a good, loving God. This city is full of those people. Your families are full of those people. I want us this morning, as we go into worship, and we sing this song that we went into this morning, about how faithful he is, how he is love and joy and peace and life. It's a declaration of the life that we find in Christ. But we also have a responsibility to not only enjoy that life in Christ, but to share that life in Christ. I think the Church of Acts can still happen today because people are still here who have desires in their hearts and the Holy Spirit is still at work. The Holy Spirit is still speaking, still moving, still breathing inside of us. Thank you.